0: Picture yourself in a pair of comfy, worn-in flip-flops, wandering through narrow, picturesque alleyways. It's late afternoon, the streets are quiet, and the relaxed vibe lets it all sink in. You're on vacation. The architecture goes from Gothic to modern, from Baroque to Art Nouveau. The scents of garlic and paprika fill the air, a gentle reminder that it's time for tapas and a cool glass of vermouth. When you're looking for culture, architecture, and a healthy dose of downtime, Barcelona really does have it all. Here to tell us what makes this coastal city such a desirable destination is journalist and filmmaker Matt Ford. With a lifetime of travel experience and over 20 years in the storytelling business, he decided to call Barcelona home. Welcome to the show, Matt.
1: Thank you, Angie. Pleasure to be here.
0: You are currently based in Barcelona, which ranked eighth on a list of the world's best cities to live, work, research and visit in 2021. So how long have you lived there and how did you end up there?
1: My wife and I, we've been expats for, for a long time. And we were looking for a move that would be suitable for starting a family, but would still would be well connected and that would have like a rich cosmopolitan culture. And we're like, all right, let's try Barcelona. And we happened to move in January of 2020. A couple months after that, we found out we were pregnant. And so it was a, a bit of a rocky landing into Barcelona, but the more that we've been able to get to know the city, get to know the community, we've just fallen in love with it with each passing year.
0: Tell us a little bit about the history of Barcelona. What makes it special among all the other Spanish cities?
1: It's on the coast, so it's gonna have like an important maritime history. It's also just right at the foothills of the Pyrenees, the part that's near the beach you have the gothic quarter and that's sort of like the reflection of the medieval ages this was the part of the city that used to have walls around it was where people would come from all over to trade it has very narrow streets it still has the stone markers on the corners to like block horse carts from wearing down the, the corners of the the stone buildings it's very 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 old and, and many of it's been maintained and restored but then if you look out past those old medieval walls it gets into this super grid system. And that sort of came in in the early part of the 20th century. And that grid system was meant to, like, as an egalitarian idea of how to set this city up. You would have commercial places on the ground floor. The more affluent people would be on the next floor up so they didn't have to walk all the way to the top of a building. And then, you know, the higher you end up in a building, sort of the poorer and more worker status you became. And the, but the idea was everybody wouldn't be in the same place. So everybody had the same access to parks, to stores, to common spaces. It was a way to just like bring all classes together in an egalitarian way. All these different villages became one larger city.
0: Is it pretty easy to get around if you're just cruising around? If you're a visitor, is it easy to get to these neighborhoods?
1: It is very easy to get around. I mean, you don't really need to take a taxi to get around the city. In fact, a lot of times it's going to take you longer to get across the city by taxi than it would by mass transit. And that's sort of by design. The best thing I can recommend is get into a subway station, get yourself a pass. It's a very easy system to use. Everything's in English or whatever your language is. And you will be able to get to just about any corner of the city, usually within 20 to 30 minutes by using mass transit here. And it's, it's very clean and efficient. And the trains come like every three minutes.
0: So if you've never been to Europe before, this is a pretty good starter city, even if you don't speak the language.
1: A lot of residents in Barcelona are quite multilingual, speaking at least three languages usually, often more than that. So whatever your background or language, you're you're probably gonna be in pretty good hands in Barcelona.
0: Barcelona is part of Catalonia, so most locals speak Catalan. Can you tell us a bit about the history behind that?
1: Catalonia, they were independent until Queen Isabella married Ferdinand, and that is what united Catalonia with Spain. The Republic of Spain was formed in the early 20th century. Shortly after that, there was a civil war. The Catalans lost Franco. He basically tried to script the culture so that everybody was Spanish. In the 70s, after Franco died, Catalonia reclaimed some of its independent status and then really wanted to reclaim its culture, too, and started teaching its language in the school and finding ways to reclaim some of the things that had been lo- lost over the years and and rebuild that culture up.
0: Let's take a turn toward architecture because Barcelona has some of the most magical, unique architecture I've seen anywhere. So, what are the highlights and what's the best way to experience them?
1: We have to start this conversation with Gaudi. <laughs> I mean, he's We do. We do. Yeah. <laughs> he's the most famous of the architects from this early 20th century era, and some of the most notable buildings that you'll see in Barcelona are done by him. So Sagrada Familia, which is down to its last tower.
0: Is that thing done yet? Can we talk about this? Is that is that guy done?
1: I think 2025 was when they were going to finish, and then the pandemic hit, and they were like, oh, we're off schedule again. But now I think it's like 2032 or something like that. But what's interesting is just this past year, they finished the last of the the smaller towers. It's just the final big tower in the middle that'll make the tallest cathedral in the world.
0: La Sagrada Familia is a cathedral and it has been under construction since 1882. So this one has been in the works for ages and ages and ages and hopefully will be finished in my lifetime so I can go see the completed (laughs) works
1: it's amazing to visit. You go inside, it feels like you're staring up into a forest. It's designed so that if you're there in the morning, the sunlight comes in and gives you like cool morning light. And if you come in the evening, the way the sun hits the the stained glass, it gives you this warm sunset experience. The whole thing's just beautifully designed to feel very in one with nature. And that's sort of a theme across all of Gaudi's architecture is that It wanted to feel that he's bringing in elements of nature and everything feels very organic and flowing in the way that that natural elements do. And the architect is buried underneath it. It's an interesting story about him. He was hit by a tram in the street and that's what killed him. And people didn't realize it was Gaudi for quite some time before they they removed him from the street. Oh, wow. Sort of sad end to an innovative architect.
0: Are there other Gaudi buildings that people absolutely must see when they visit?
1: Whether you decide to go inside them or not, a lot of other Gaudi influences and, and buildings you can see are on Passage de Grazia. So the, like going back to the village discussion before, like Passage de Grazia was the connection between the old Gothic quarter and the village of Grazia. So it was just constant movement between those two villages. And then when the ex- expansion period happened, this was like the hot property. So every affluent family in the city was like, I'm getting my house on this street and I'm going to get the best architect to just make the most flamboyant, impressive, everybody's going to talk about it house. And it was sort of like a keeping up with the Joneses competition that went up and down the street. And Gaudi was, you know, he was the main man in the city. So he was really involved in, in building a lot of these. So you have Casa Valle, Casa Mile, Casa Amaye. So you had all these different affluent families that were building these fancy houses. And they all have like, really interesting museum presentations now to them. Some are sort of on Gaudi's history and his approach to architecture and how that comes through. Other are these really like 3D presentations but they're very, very interesting. You can on the website you can get a, a sense of like what you're gonna see in the different in the different buildings.
0: Presumably Gaudi's not the only architect that has ever built anything in Barcelona. So what are some other buildings people could see or some other interesting architecture?
1: One of my favorite places in Barcelona and I think ends up too low on the list for a lot of people is Montjuic. It's this giant mountain that's near the southern end of the city, and it's one of the best pieces of green space in the city. It's not for the faint of heart if you are afraid of stairs, <laughs> but if you're, if you're up for some stairs, you, get, you, know, you have the, the Catalonia Palace, which is the main art museum in the city. You've got the castle on the top, you go out and look across Barcelona and see the mountains on the other side. So it's it's one of my favorite places to go on the weekend to just get some fresh air and just see some amazing views and maybe pop in and, and see some art or just or spend the day outside.
0: And now a AAA travel minute, traveling with Fido. Taking your dog on vacation with you can be a tough trick to master. But with a few adjustments, your four-legged friend can be your best travel buddy. First, decide if the destination itself is Fido-friendly. Outdoorsy spots like mountains, beaches, and parks that allow pets may be appropriate. Just be sure to check local regulations before setting out. Avoid places where your pup will spend lots of time alone in a hotel room. If at all possible, drive rather than fly. The Humane Society cautions that air travel poses health risks for pets. Not to mention every airline has its own, sometimes confusing restrictions. As for overnights, plenty of hotel chains now welcome dogs. Some even include special amenities. But for longer stays, a rental home with a yard and place to wash off paws is often more practical. Either way, bring along your pet's favorite blanket or toys. That can help them feel more at home on the road. This has been a AAA Travel Minute. Barcelona is as busy as any city in Europe, especially in the summer. I imagine it gets pretty crowded. How is the city dealing with that? And are they taking any steps to prevent over-tourism?
1: They've done that in a few ways. There's a big crack town on vacation rentals. There's very few places that can get permits to be an Airbnb or something like that. So you will probably find you will get a much better deal coming to Barcelona and just getting a hotel than you will for an Airbnb. I think Barcelona has probably handled it better than than a lot of other cities, but it's it's not a problem that has been fully resolved yet. Like, you know, every calculation they make, whether they've been considering expanding the airport, and then it's like, do they do that to help business? But does it also then expand tourism and aggravate the problems they've dealt with it before? It is a topic of conversation on almost every major new initiative, how to strike that balance.
0: Yeah, that's probably the hardest thing for any popular destination, right? Because you you want to be able to support the culture and tell everybody about how special your destination is, but you also don't want everybody to come all at once, right?
1: You sort of have to find that balance of like, what is too much. Just understand that people are are really struggling to maintain their communities and find ways to do it and have some warranted frustrations. But there's a lot of the city that still needs and depends on tourism. And so you can have a, a great experience coming and visiting here
0: what's a good time for people to visit and kind of get the best of the weather and the least people?
1: The city is busy with tourists in the summer. The locals all leave in the summer. It is very, very hot in July and August in Barcelona. So if you come here, then you're not going to get as much of a local experience as you might other times of year, and you're probably going to be very, 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 very hot. The end of August, a lot of people start coming back for the neighborhood festivals, and that is where you can get like a true local Barcelona experience. My favorite time is... Christmas to King's Day. And that's just my absolute favorite time in, in Barcelona. So across the U.S., the Christmas season sort of ends on Christmas. In Barcelona, it's just getting started. <laughs> the kids here, they don't open their presents on, on Christmas. They open it on, on King's Day. They take out their sticks. They beat a little log called cagatío which translates to Uncle Poop. <laughs> and <laughs> and they've been feeding him leaves and sticks for, for a month. And when they beat him with a stick, he poops out all the presents for them and then they unwrap them.
0: <laughs> well, that is a unique cultural story.
1: It is. There's a lot of sort of scatological interest <laughs> in the holidays here. They also have these things called kaganers. They're really into making nativity scenes. So the Christmas markets have all of these things to create your own nativity scenes. And one of the big ones is there's these stores where you can buy these little guys who are pooping. And you always try to like, hide it somewhere in the nativity scene where like he's out back, you know, <laughs> dropping a deuce okay. behind, behind the nativity scene. It sounds insane when I tell people about this, but it is a a, a big part of it.
0: So it's like where's Waldo, but yeah, but of a little a guy. A little bit pooping. different. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I'm glad you you mentioned that because that could be surprising to people when they come across this when they visit.
1: It sounds insane, but it's part of why Christmas is so fun because it's it's very very whimsical, and they have a King's Day parade on January 5th that is just massive it's when the three kings come to barcelona that like more than seeing santa like kids want to see the three kings arrive and parade around the city they throw candy people are having hot chocolate and churros there's just parties and festivals and everybody's welcome if you're into the beach and those aspects of barcelona the shoulder season is better for you They're like april may september october november those are still going to be fairly busy times but that's when you're going to get some of the best weather doesn't rain, we're in the middle of a drought crisis here because it almost never rains nowadays. So you don't really need to worry about weather except for like the extreme heat of, of July and August.
0: The opening hours for most shops in Barcelona is Monday to Saturday from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. and then from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Why is that?
1: This idea of taking a break in the middle of the day is, is very important culturally. So some places like they'll be closed from two to four. Other places will be closed from one to three or, or sometimes even later if they have a lot of night business. Part of what I love about Barcelona is there's a really strong emphasis on just having good like work life balance.
0: Another amazing thing about Spain is the food. Who influenced Spanish food and brought it to a wider audience?
1: Catalonia has not really won many conflicts. They tend to be conquered a lot. And when you're conquered, whether it be the Romans or the Visigoths or the Arabs, like they're in, they bring their food in, they bring their spices, and they bring all these things into it, and it evolves over time. And especially when it was a trading port that brought lots and lots of different things. And so I think it's, it's been an evolution over time. Barcelona has become this hub for some of the best chefs in the world. The... Uh, Amount of Michelin star places in a city this small is just insane. And that level of talent here really spills over into a lot of mid-range restaurants and it just sort of raises the bar for restaurants in general. And that paired with just traditional Catalan cuisine has just really made it a very rich culinary scene that people are able to, you know, chefs are able to exploit all these interesting things that come from very close to the city.
0: Do you have a favorite Michelin star restaurant that you recommend? Is there one that just blew your mind?
1: If you're going to spend your savings on one really big Michelin star restaurant, I think Disrutar sort of has
0: to be at the top of the
1: list. These guys own like three or four restaurants across the city, Compertier as well. But I went there a few months ago and during the dessert, Tim Cook was standing at the end of my table. I mean, this is just like when people are coming from all over, this is like, considered one of the best restaurants in the world is just really hard to believe what they're even doing. I mean, it's it's science and innovation mixed with with food. It's very, very expensive, though. So this is something to do if you're, you're really, really willing to to put down for a, a big experience. But there's lots of other Michelin star restaurants that aren't quite as expensive as, as that. I had an amazing birthday at Koishunko, which is like a Japanese sushi style restaurant. And that's in the, the gothic quarter. That's very good. So a place I like to take visitors when they come here is Bar Cañete. They have all the traditional dishes. You can really sit there and just keep ordering things to, to take a tour of, of Catalan cuisine. That's a place I like to take visitors when they're there for the first time, just so I can sort of show them everything, know it's all going to be executed really well, and, and sort of have a, a nice basis to start from. Igualdo does great Basque food. There's, there's a street in San Antony that has these pinchos, which is like just a lot of food on top of little cuts of of French bread. And you can just walk up and down the street, picking the the window, like, give me like that one, that one, that one. And and I'll take a beer. And then you can just try all these different foods. Like this is where getting out to the different neighborhoods really makes a difference because you're going to get some more touristy focused restaurants. There are some like really brilliant restaurants in the Gothic quarter and in in that area, but each neighborhood, you're just going to see some really amazing places and sometimes just wandering and seeing the thing that appeals to you. You'll find some, some special hidden gems.
0: So people should plan to have at least one splashy Michelin star meal.
1: If you're here on a student budget or something like that, like the nice tip is during the day, a lot of the restaurants do a daily menu. So like I said, everybody takes this break in the middle of the day and the daily menu usually includes a first course, a second course, a dessert and a drink. And so you can have what feels like a luxurious hour and a half, two hour meal with a glass of wine And you basically have spent 15 bucks. And it's a great way to just really get a sense of the food here. And and you'll probably really eat well in those daily menus.
0: And it also gives you the opportunity to, like you said, do some slow dining, which I think when you're traveling from the U.S., you're like, go, go, go. And you have this crazy itinerary. But a big part of eating in Spain, maybe also like in Turkey and Greece, is sitting down for a long time and sipping your wine and actually thinking about the food you're eating and tasting it and having a conversation and not rushing through it. That's a cultural thing that I think we miss out on in the U.S., especially when we're planning a trip and just trying to fit in a whole beautiful, amazing city and all its sights.
1: And that's an important thing to note because a lot of Americans get really frustrated. They'll show up to like some restaurant that's really high reviewed and they'll be like, oh, there's not a single person sitting in here. Amazing. And then they'll go to the person and be like, oh, can I have a table? And they'll be like, we're fully booked. Sorry. I'm like, but it's empty. There's nobody in here. (laughs) The way they do it here is they're not just turning over tables. So if you book a reservation for lunch, you have that table for the whole lunch service. They do one sitting and they book out the tables for the sitting and that's it. Sometimes if you come at the end of the lunch service and some people have left and there's enough time for the kitchen, they'll be like, all right. You got like forty minutes. If you wanna have some stuff, we still have these five things. If that's enough for you and you guys are okay, like then you can sort of squeeze in a tail end second sitting. But for the most part, if you show up at the start of a service and they've already booked the tables, even if it's empty, they're not gonna sit.
0: So say you did forget to book at one of these places that you really wanted to go and you just missed out on the seating and they can't squeeze you in. Is the Boqueria, La Boqueria, a good option for eating on the go?
1: La Boqueria, which is like the main market down in the Gothic Quarter, it's actually one of 39 markets. And this is like a big part of how Barcelona functions. Each neighborhood community has its own market. And in there you'll have the fishmongers, you'll have the guys selling meat or chicken, you have all these produce sellers specialists in cheese and other stuff and there's always a couple of bars and eating areas where the people that work in the market will go and eat and also anybody can just pull up a stool and order whatever they have so in in a lot of these markets you can just be like can you cook up that fish for me? (laughs) And they'll be like, all right, yeah, we'll get it. And we'll prepare it, salt it, put it with a little something. And you can just eat like really fresh stuff right there. So La Bocqueria is great because it's really, that one's catered towards just all these people coming in and out. So there's a lot of places where you can pull up a stool or they already have all these fries or fruit cups or whatever. You can just grab something to walk and go there. But if you get out into the more neighborhood ones, there's not as much of that like, to-go packs, <laughs> but there's still going to be places where you can sit down and have something to eat. And there's a lot of really nice restaurants usually around the market as well. It's sort of the market is is meant as this like core meeting spot for people to do their weekly shopping or to, to get some fresh produce for the day. And so all these other little bars and and places that people in the neighborhood meet and congregate tend to pop up in the immediate circumference of, of the market. So flagging on the map where those are in a neighborhood that you want to visit, you know, is a good idea because you'll you'll usually find some interesting spots to check out right around the market.
0: This is making me very hungry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I guess we should probably talk a little bit about wine as well. A lot of people, when they think about Spanish wine, they think about Rioja, Tempranillo, these big, bold reds. There's another wine region that has the same high-level classification as Rioja, and that's Prioriat in Catalonia. And Prioriat is, is, is definitely one you should try if you're into wine. Craft beer is also starting to boom here. Most people you'll see on the street, you know, if they're having a beer in the middle of the day, they're drinking Australia. That's the main brand. But the, the craft beer market is starting to, to really pop up. Vermouth is sort of like a young wine that has herbs in it over ice with usually like an olive and a, or orange in it. And that's definitely worth trying, especially if it's a hot summer day. It's quite, quite refreshing.
0: Matt Ford, thank you for joining us. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us. If you're planning a trip, be sure to connect with a AAA travel advisor. Check out AAA.com forward slash travel or visit your local branch. This podcast is a production of Auto Club Enterprises. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review. I'm Angie Orth. Thank you for traveling with AAA.